Welcome, everyone, to episode 71 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we're rolling back the clock for our episode format, at least, as we will be giving two movies, Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Little Women and the Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, full reviews on the podcast today. But before we get to either of those films, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? How has your holiday season been so far? It's been great, Scott. You know, just doing all the usual stuff, spending time with family, just enjoying being back here in Chattanooga and seeing a lot of movies, of course, too. This is a uh, this is a big week for the podcast because uh, I believe you'll hear this on the 31st. Um, and tomorrow, then, if you're listening to this on the 31st, we'll be doing our best of 2019 live stream Um with the host of Purely Nostalgia, we're going to be doing our, our usual roundtable top 10 movies of the year. You know, this is our biggest episode of the year. So looking forward to um, a great week of podcasting, looking forward to that episode. Um, and who knows, maybe one or both of the movies which we talk about today may appear on that best of 2019 show. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There there definitely is a, is a chance of that. Uh, I, I guess listen to the reviews and and figure it out for yourself whether you think that they're in our top 10s or uh, I mean, we will be mentioning in our top 20, but whether or not they're in our top 10 specifically. And uh, why not just go ahead and jump right in since this is going to be a bit of a longer episode. No reason to delay any longer. We'll start with Greta Gerwig's follow up to her 2017 coming of age hit Lady Bird with her adaptation of Little Women reuniting with her. From Lady Bird is Saoirse Ronan, who plays the lead role of Joe March, an aspiring young writer during the Civil War, and the second of four March sisters. The eldest, Meg, played by Emma Watson, is an aspiring actress. The third, Florence Pugh's Amy, is an aspiring artist. And the youngest, Beth, played by Eliza Scanlon, hasn't yet found her place in the world. Told across two parallel time periods, one during the Civil War and one seven years later, Little Women tells the story of the March sisters as they navigate their world as young women trying to carve out their place in it. With an all-star main cast and a supporting cast equally talented with the likes of Timothy Chalamet as the March's rich neighbor, Lori, Laura Dern as the March mother, Marmee, and Meryl Streep as Aunt March, did this latest adaptation of Louisa, Louisa May Alcott's timeless classic sweep you off your feet, Scott, or did it leave you wanting a little bit more on Christmas morning? Yeah, you know, Scott, I consider myself a Little Women fan, despite having not read the book. Maybe that's blasphemy, but uh, I do intend to read the book very soon. But I, I do consider myself a Little Women fan uh, because I do love the 1994 version. have seen it multiple times, uh, directed by Gillian Armstrong, and also recently watched the 2017 miniseries um, and enjoyed that one as well. Uh, and of course, this was one of my most anticipated movies of the year, simply because of who was involved with this movie and the fact that I do love the story so much. Like this is one of those stories that I, I think it, it's really hard to mess up um, from a, from a filmmaking standpoint uh, because it's just such a good story. But with that being said, and despite, despite all the talent involved with this, I think I was still a little skeptical just because of the remakes that we've seen recently, particularly from Disney. 
we're lacking in originality. And, you know, is there anything, despite the fact that Greta Gerwig is an incredibly talented filmmaker, despite the fact that these actors are incre all incredibly gifted, is there anything new that they can bring to this material? And I, I was still skeptical about that. And also, I mean, and skeptical because I do love the 1994 version. And when I saw that version, you know, when I heard this version, new version was coming out, I really wondered if it could top that 1994 version. Uh, and yet it manages to. Um, and I think my fears about whether it brings anything new to the story um, were allayed very quickly uh, by this film, because I think if I had to sum up what Greta Gerwig does here in a word, it would be miraculous. Uh, I think that what she is able to bring to this story, um, I could not have imagined. Uh, it just feels like such a fuller and more rich tale of the the March family. And honestly, looking back now on that 1994 version, I think my appreciation for it has diminished a little bit. I still love the film, but uh, now that I could see, now that I see what all can be done in a Little Women adaptation with this Gerwig adaptation, uh, I think I maybe appreciate it slightly less. So I think it does have its virtues certainly. And, and I think that it, you know it's amazing because. The two movies, the think about the '94 version and this version, they have pretty much the same running time. But yet, it feels like we just accomplished so much more in the 2019 version uh, that Gerwig directs, uh, and that's mainly because of the full portraits that she gives to each of the March sisters. Right, like Amy and Meg in particular are can be can tend to be forgotten characters in the uh, 1994 version and in, in the other adaptations that I've seen. That they're kind of you know not necessarily put on the sidelines, but their stories are, you know, placed below Joe's on the hierarchy. And I don't think that that is necessarily the case here. Obviously, I think Joe's is still the most important story to Little Women, but I think that every single one of the March sisters get their individual moments to shine. Uh, they touch on some themes that have not been touched on in the adaptations that I've seen. And in the scenes when they're together, the chemistry between these actresses just jumps off of the screen. And that's something that I think was missing, particularly from the 2017 adaptation uh, that I watched. The chemistry between the March sisters um, and, and the four actresses here is incredible. It feels so lived in. It feels like, you know, these people, it's cliche, but it feels like these people actually are sisters in real life. I think that, you know, speaking to that, the performances are just as excellent as you would expect from this cast. Um, I, I still think this movie is going to get Oscar attention, even though it's been fading in awards attention um, thus far. But I still think that multiple performances in this movie are worthy of Oscar nominations, if not, uh, you know, Oscar wins. And I think that in particular, Greta Gerwig absolutely deserves a Best Director nomination for what she's able to do here. And, and again, revising this story, which has been told many times on screen, many times, not just those two adaptations that I have mentioned, but all the way going back to 1933 was the very first film adaptation. And yet somehow bringing something new to it and, you know, st yet still giving tribute to Louisa May Alcott. And, and in fact, you know, I think that some people who are big fans of the novel may be a little reticent when they hear that Oh, she's taking some creative liberties, in particular with the way that she structures the story and also with the way that uh, the movie ends. But I, if anything, I think that fans of Little Women are going to appreciate uh, these changes even more because I think they are a they are done as a tribute to Louisa May Alcott and uh, the um, incredible character that she created in particular in Joe March uh, talking about the ending. Um, and so I think that fans are going to appreciate this just as much as non-fans, just as, as much as people just coming to look for a good story. And I think that 
by changing the structure as she does, Gerwig is able to address so, some of the sort of metatextual criticisms and things that people have had about Little Women over the years, um, and also address sort of metatextually the circumstances in which Alcott wrote the novel. Um, and I think that you know any any creative liberties, any expansion beyond the novel um, that Gerwig takes here only serves to amplify your appreciation for the novel and for its characters. So Scott, even though I expected to love this movie, even though I was looking forward to it all year, uh, this movie blew me away. And I think proves that Greta Gerwig is one of the best filmmakers that we have working today. I think that it's, it's a beautifully crafted film. I mean, I think there's a certain genre of film that we've talked about or at least that I've at least thought about a lot this year. And I think we've talked about some on the podcast that just strike you for just how like beautiful they are to look at and absorb. And I think that this definitely falls into that category. You know, the type of filmmaking that, you know, Greta Gerwig is, is crafting here. And with this particular cast, I mean, this cast of, you know, almost entirely women, really, except for Timothy Chalamet and Tracy Letts and, and Chris you know, Cooper. Yeah. And Chris Cooper. It's just a very small handful uh, of men in a predominantly female led cast. And I have no experience with either the the book or previous like movie adaptation. Something's hap- something's very loud in the background. Sorry, something was on my desk. Okay. okay. And so, not being familiar with those prior adaptations, I really came in with with as clean of a slate as you possibly could. Like, basically, the extent of my knowledge is watching the trailer for this film and bit knowing that there are four March sisters. I mean, I really didn't know anything else about this. And the and the story that is crafted as a result, and the story that I experience is one that. I don't feel like I have the same connection to as a lot of people who are going to go see this film, especially not you, even though you haven't read the book, the fact that you've seen multiple adaptations of it before and have a great appreciation and, and hold it near and dear to your own heart. And so it took me a little time to really feel like I was fully invested with everything that was going on on screen. I think it was, again, it's one of those things where you can see and acknowledge the incredible filmmaking that you're seeing. And I think that, you know, Greta Gerwig follows up a coming of age story in a very that's a very modern coming of age story with Lady Bird with this very different coming of age story. I'll be interested to see when she directs something that's not a coming of age story to see how she how she does with that. But clearly she really is able to get at the heart of what inspires these types of movies and inspires you to fall in love uh with characters. And obviously Lady Bird being an original story and this one being an adaptation, there are different components that come with that, especially with an adaptation of a novel that's you know, has been read for, you know, a century and a half already. And so I think that the reaction to this film makes a lot of sense because she's doing something that is balances, you know, the, the content or material with, with her own creative vision and her portrayal of that story. I'm assuming based on what you were saying that the book and other narratives are not, you know, told in two parallel timelines that it's told no. chronologically. Yeah. Yeah. So in case it wasn't clear from what I meant by the structure, uh, yeah, the novel um, and other adaptations, all of the other adaptations, I believe, have been told in a chronological format, starting with the marches as young sisters yeah. uh, and going forward as they leave their home, basically, um, and go about their lives. Whereas in Gerwig's version, we are f- constantly flashing back and forth between the two t- timelines. And in fact, uh we open the movie about halfway through the novel with Joe having already moved to New York to become a writer. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to, to see a version or to read the book in, in, a, in a different construction, because I think that with that, re- like with the structure that she lays out in her version of the film, she's able to 
invest you in probably in the characters in different ways than you are given. And I think that it probably does does a credit to some of the sisters, to your point, the fact that she gives more time spent with Meg and Amy. And I mean, I'm not, I, again, I don't have anything to compare it to, but I feel like I know a lot about these characters because you're not, it's not being told chronologically just from Joe's perspective. Uh, again, I, I, I'm, I don't really have anything to compare it to, but I think that that's something that works really well. And, and I, I, what I will say is that um, a lot of the reason that she did this, from what I understand, is that over the years there have been a couple of criticisms of certain plot developments in Little Women, particularly that Joe does not end up with Laurie, right? Um, that uh, is something that people have always criticized. They've always felt that Joe should end up with Laurie and not Professor Bayer, which is who she does end up with. Um, and and similarly, uh, the relationship between Amy and Laurie uh, that eventually develops at when they become older um, feels very rushed in the same way that that Joe and Professor's Bear, Professor Bear's relationship can feel rushed. Um, like, you know, you're an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes into the story, you know, I think with the 1994 version, and all of a sudden you're introduced to uh, this romance between Amy and Laurie, which they only get like one scene really together, maybe in the 94 version. And the same thing kind of with Joe and Professor Bear, although actually we get a little bit more of Professor Bear in the 94 version than we do here. But regardless, Gerwig does this, I think, to address some of those concerns so that we know these characters um, from the beginning of the movie, um, even if, you know, she doesn't even if Professor Bear isn't a constant force throughout, I think in particular it serves the Amy and Laurie romance really well because they actually do have a legitimate romance and share a lot of scenes together uh, because of the way that Gerwig structures the film. So that's why she does it, I think. Yeah, and, and I think that's a, that's a good point. And we'll talk about, I think we'll talk about all those things a little bit later on and, and my perspectives on them having, you know, be, being a, a newcomer to this to this story and to this, in this novel, this retelling. I think that overall, one of the things that I and one of the reasons I don't think I'm really captured it is that for the first 30, 45 minutes of the movie, I'm not really sure what what the point of it all is. Um, and I think that, you know, it's one thing if you, if you come to a story and you're following people's lives chronologically, you can understand like this is this is a coming of age story, right? You're 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 progressing through their childhood at the same time that they are in, in a way. And with this retelling, it's it's a story that is told where the person has already come of age in some sense and is and is remembering or flashing back to times uh pre previous and so i think that as much as i agree that it effectively maybe gives gives a better telling of the amy laurie dynamic and i would imagine that is one of the key reasons that greta gerwig approaches the story that way i don't know if i immediately felt captivated you know, by these characters as I and, and as connected to them as I might have otherwise in a, in a different tone of the story. And it, you know, I, I hesitate to say this because I think it comes off as a little bit too harsh. But I honestly thought the first half hour for Dennis maybe were a little bit boring. Um, I had a hard time getting uh, super invested in it. But when I finally do get invested, you know, the last third, you know, to half of the movie, I am absolutely, you know, glued to the screen, edge of my seat, really invested. And I think, although I do have some qualms that we can discuss a little bit later on, uh, towards the end, I mean, by the end, I don't, I didn't want it. I didn't want it to end by the end. Uh, it just took a little bit of time to get me there. But overall, I think the performances are really strong. And Florence Pugh is having, you know, one of the best years of any actor and actress, probably who's, who's working constantly with the exception of maybe Adam Driver. And I think that Saoirse Ronan continues to kind of cement her, her way of playing complex young female characters you know, even though she's been in several coming of age 
uh, movies, at least with between Lady Bird and this one, they're completely different characters. Each and the screen, of course, they have similar personalities and that they, you know, want to become what they want to become. But the way in which they go about becoming those things feels very different. And, and I think Saoirse Ronan does such a wonderful job with that. Eliza Scanlon, maybe someone who's going to be going to be talked about the least of the four March sisters, I think does a really good job as Beth. My, I mentioned this in my letterbox read. My only fear is that you know maybe she falls and falls under the radar going forward if if the character she isn't being cast to play isn't the sick teenage girl uh, from her time on Sharp Objects playing a very similar role at least in the context that, that she's playing it in. And then Emma Watson to me probably the least the one that stands out the least to me in terms of performances. But still, I mean, when you're comparing yourself to Florence Pugh, Saoirse Ronan, Laura Dern, Timothy Chalamet, I mean, you have a hard time living up to, to those performances from, you know, some of the best actors and actresses that are young. And then also, of course, Laura Dern, who's also having a great year for that matter with her role in Marriage Story. Uh, I think the acting across the board is strong, uh, but that's kind of the order and the way in which I'm thinking about the performances. And uh, Greta Gerwig, you're right. I think that you could handle pretty much any coming of age material and she could do the best with it. Uh, I look forward to her next film, which it, you were reminded me is the Barbie movie with Margot Robbie. Yeah, I hope that's not a coming of age story because I wanted to do something different. I want to see something different from her. But this is, I mean, this is a really good movie. Yeah, I can't imagine that it would be with Robbie in the the title role. But something else I will say is that with regard to the structure, I think that another thing it helps Gerwig do is sort of have parallel moments in the story and comp compare something that is happening in the adult timeline to something that happened in the younger yeah. timeline. Like for example, Meg and her dreams of becoming a housewife and then the reality of what that is like um, when she is struggling financially with um, her husband, with with Mr. Brooke, John Brooke, that he, she eventually marries. Um, I think that it, it serves the story well because she is able to um, compare these moments and uh, see how maybe their aspirations didn't turn out as they planned or how, you know, certain relationships have evolved over time. And I think it's effective. Yeah, I, I agree. I think from that sense, imagining the story being told chronologically, it, it would leave a very different impression in those latter scenes. It, it is able to kind of hit you right in the in the forehead, so to speak, with with the message that it's trying to convey. And I don't think that's a problem in this sense because it's done in a really smart and, and clever way. I mean, it's oftentimes we'll talk about something's beating you over the head. It's it doesn't need to be so on the nose. But in this case, I think it works really well. Because you do have these scenes, the way you're talking about that, where these people are, where these, you know, the four sisters are talking about what they want to be, what they want to do with their lives. And, you know, you can fast forward to seven years later and see how far they didn't go in some cases, in the, ca in, in the case of, of Meg, uh, and how far they might have come. In the case of Amy, who is, of course, in Europe, you know, paint, learn, learning how to paint. Uh, and I think it serves the, the, the romantic aspect uh, that you were mentioning earlier, that it does serve that really well. Uh, also, I just think, and we can start talking about the performances now, and there's no better place to start than with Saoirse Ronan, probably, and Joe. And one of the things that I, I was so slow to warm up to the movie on is because I think that opening sequence where you get, you know, where it is just a lot of Joe starting out in, in, in New York City, I think that she's, like, not a very likable character starting out. I think that she uh, comes off as... I as just really short tempered in some ways in the context of the whole movie, you can understand. I think you get a really clear understanding of why and you become really invested in this character. But I had a really hard time getting on board with, you know, wanting the best for Joe right away. And, and I think that a lot of this story in the, at least in, at least traditionally how it's told is probably you have to be really invested in Joe and have to want what is best for Joe. 
for the movie to work for you. And I think that this particular structure starting in the place that they started, I didn't immediately feel that way. And so maybe I think that kind of lent itself to my uh, slow warming up to the film. At the same time, you, you could argue that the way that the story retail uh, structures itself allows you to become more invested in some of the other sisters than you might otherwise. And so that's kind of a counterbalance that maybe ultimately pulls me into the movie and, and maybe even deeper so you know, 30, 45 minutes, an hour into the film. Yeah, no, I think, I, I mean, I, I didn't have the same reaction to you to Joe. I was I was in from the beginning. Um, Which makes I, sense. I, I, yeah, I loved Ronan's performance. I think that she's a strong-willed character and maybe that's something that takes getting used to and that's why, um, you know, for, for people who aren't as familiar with the story, it may take you uh, a bit to get past that. Um, but I think she, like, I'm, I'll make a bold statement here, but I think that, at this moment in time, there is no one actor or actress who is doing better work than Saoirse Ronan is. Um, I think a hot take. It, it's a hot take, but look, I yeah. stand by it. I think that every single performance she has given, going all the way back to Atonement, an, an Academy Award nomination in her first role at age 13, right? Like that says it all right there. Um, I think it's just been incredible performance after incredible performance for her. And there's a great story, right, about uh, in the casting of this movie, when, of course, Saoirse Ronan loved the book Little Women, much as Winona Ryder, who played um, Joe in the 94 version, also loved the book. And Ronan basically heard that Greta Gerwig had this version in development, went up to her at some event that they were both at and said to her, I am going to play your Joe March. Um, very confidently, you know, just just told her she was going to play Joe March. And honestly, very yeah. Joe March ask of her. Yes, it, that is true. And also, uh, if I'm Greta Gerwig and like Saoirse Ronan walks up and says, I'm going to be in your movie. I'm like, OK, yes. Where do you want to like sign the paper? Here's the contract right here. Like, I don't think Greta Gerwig probably had a very hard time agreeing to that. But um, nevertheless, I think she brings the sort of passion and commitment to the role that you would expect to someone of someone who has been so connected to this character for a long time, as it seems that Ronan has. Yeah, she, she again. She's a, she's a strong-willed character, and like sort of bends gender norms a little bit um, in a way that some Joes haven't necessarily in the past. Like I don't think that Winona Ryder brought that to her character, which is why I honestly have trouble comparing them a little bit because like I think Winona Ryder is an amazing Joe. Like if you go watch the '94 version, that's maybe my favorite part of the movie is Winona Ryder's performance. And even having someone like Ronan in this movie, I was like, are they really going to be able to beat? Um, what Winona Ryder did. And I think I think she mostly, you know, matches it, but it's also a different performance. I, I think they just bring something different, different to the character. Um, and there's one scene in particular, I think, where the range of emotions that Ronan is able to convey in this one scene. And I, I do want to talk about it a little bit later because it, it bodes on how I uh, interpret the ending of the movie, but um, where she's in her room in the attic um, and is talking to Marmy about um, her, you know, what she wants out of life, basically. And uh, what what Ronan is able to do in that scene is pretty astonishing from an emotional perspective and um, one of the, the best acting moments of the year, for sure. Um, and I think that that is that is consistent throughout. Um, I, I love the take charge approach that she brings to this character. Um, and ultimately, I, I love where this character ends up. Uh, the the autonomy that she is given by Greta Gerwig uh, in the end, and you know by Louisa May Alcott as well as what Gerwig seems to be suggesting, um, I think plays really well uh, for the change to the ending of the movie that Greta Gerwig makes. And yeah, I think Ronan is excellent throughout. I think the standout performance to me is Florence Pugh as Amy. Um, 
and maybe again, this is just the fact that um, the fact that this character doesn't get a lot of airtime in the other movies. Um, and but but nevertheless, she is given more airtime here, and Florence Pugh absolutely makes the most of that. Um, I love this sort of again talking about the parallelisms that go on in the movie. I love because I don't think that this was clear in the other adaptations, the sort of way that they parallel uh, Joe and Amy as, as people and as characters. And the fact that they're both sort of uh, want to be artists. They both want to like Joe wants to grow up and be a writer. Uh, Amy wants to paint. They like butt heads as kids because maybe because they do have such similar personalities. Um, and, but then it's interesting to see how that plays out in, um, you know, in the when they're when they're adults, quote unquote, in the adult narrative. Um, and I think Florence Pugh's best scene probably comes when she is uh, with Laurie and confronting um, the the fact that she has sort of been in Joe's shadow for her entire life uh, and, and wants to get out of that shadow. And that, you know, going to Europe maybe was her way to try and do that with Aunt March. Um, but I, I so I love this performance. I think that there's a maturity to her performance. And I, I think this is probably also how, you know, based on how the character was written, because I think that Amy Marches and other adaptations can converge on annoying at times because she is supposed to be the youngest sister. She is only 13 years old in the younger um, story. Obviously, Florence Pugh doesn't look 13 at any point in this movie. Um, Wait, she's supposed to be the youngest? Mm-hmm. Yes, oh, Amy well. is the youngest. Um, that's not clear whatsoever. <laughs> right. Well, I, but I, but I think that that's the point, right? I think they're they're addressing. I think Gerwig is addressing maybe the fact that um, Amy marches can sometimes come off as um, immature and and you know kind of just the annoying kid. Like, I, and it's a weird dynamic too, right? Because you often have an older actress playing the role. Like I think about in the 2017 version, Catherine Newton was playing Amy, and she was probably like 20 at the time. But they didn't really do anything to update the character. They made her basically act like a 13-year-old. And that it just came off as a little obnoxious. Um, here, I think they do the right thing. They're like, we're going to cast Florence Pugh. We're going to cast this 22-year-old actress. So we're going to make the character seem more mature from a young age. Uh, and so, again, I love the way that that clashes with Joe. Um, and, yes, she still does have her moments of, oh, she's a child. Um, you know, the famous burning of Joe's book, I think, is a great example of that. Um but I think that there's a maturity there that makes this character much easier to swallow and much easier to like throughout the movie. Um, and yeah, I just I just love the the rich portrait of of Amy that Florence Pugh provides. As for the other performances, I think they're all really good. Like this is the definition of an ensemble piece, and I can't uh, understand how SAG like this is the embodiment of what they should be looking for for a you know best cast in a motion picture, their top award. And it wasn't it wasn't nominated, um, which is absurd, but. Um, I think even, you know, going down the line, I do like Emma Watson's performance. Again, maybe it's more of what they are able to do with the character and give her some new scenes and new uh, depth that she hasn't had in other interpretations. But I think she's solid. Eliza Scanlon, as you said, I really like what they Chris Cooper and, and as Mr. Lawrence. I think he gets some really touching scenes in the movie. Um, Laura Dern. I agree. Laura Dern gets a really good scene that I like with uh, her and Joe, I believe it is, where uh, it, it almost made me think back to a beautiful day in the neighborhood a little bit, weirdly enough. And this, uh, where she's talking about, uh, Joe is basically asking her about how she's able to remain so calm and resolute and everything throughout, uh, the stress that is going on in her household and the fact that her husband's off at war and just everything that she has to deal with on a daily basis. And, you know, Laura Dern kind of tells her that I am mad all the time. Like I, I'm, it's, it's all inside of me. Um, I just, I just don't let it show kind of in the same way that, 
um, a beautiful day in the neighborhood explored that sort of idea with with Mr. Rogers, I think. Well, so that was an interesting parallel. But yeah, that's a great scene for Laura Dern across the board. An amazing cast, an outstanding cast. Oh, and I, I'm also forgetting Chalamet briefly. Um, I think that I really like what he brings to Laurie. I think this is my favorite Laurie that I've seen in the adaptations, uh, mainly because like I am one of the few people who have always rooted for Professor Bear over Laurie. Like I, I didn't realize that it was a criticism that Joe ends up with doesn't end up with Laurie until like reading more about this interpretation of the the movie, because I've always thought that you know she deserves to be with Professor Bear. Laurie was not right for her, whatever. Um, but I actually liked Laurie in this adaptation. I think that while I still don't think that Joe should have ended up with Laurie, I think that Timothy Chalamet brings like some really nice, like light comedic touches. The way he like moves is really like playful. And it, it really speaks to sort of the, I, I guess, like immaturity. He's like an overgrown child in, in some particular scenes um, that I think make it impossible really for him and Joe to ever work as a couple, but maybe explain why he and Amy could ultimately you know, would ultimately be a good match. And so I really like what Chalamet does here. It's one of the many great performances in this cast. I mean, the cast overall is so strong. And just to actually talk about the performances now, um, because I didn't before, I was mainly just talking about Joe as a character. Yeah, I agree. I think Saoirse Ronan is fantastic. I think that my, I, I really, look, again, look forward to kind of growing up with, you know, with her and, and how her roles evolve over time. I mean, so, so many of her roles, again, not unlike Greta Gerwig's, I guess, directing, have been similar. I mean, her characters in Lady Bird and Brooklyn are both, uh, you know, strong, you know, strong-willed women who are but trying. Bring, yeah, but she brings something different to all of them. I think, which is honestly, yeah. Maybe yeah even let me more finish. Different. I mean, come on, I'm going yeah, to say that. Um, but no, but, but the fact that they are similar, similar, similar characters, they're still in, you know, incredibly different performances. I think from her, and so when you actually you know, get to those performance, uh, get get to different types of characters and, and she starts taking on those roles, which I think will happen naturally over time as she, you know, is no longer a teenager or young 20, you know, young 20 something uh, uh, woman. I think that those roles will evolve over time as well. Like, I just, I just think about the fact, like, can you imagine a version of Little Women like 30 years from now where, where she plays Marmee? I think that'd be so cool. Uh, and I, and it's, I have no idea whether that will happen, obviously, but I think uh, it, she's such an exciting actress to watch on screen because, you know, you could even make I think you could even make the same movie. She could be in a, a Joe in another Little Women adaptation and give a completely different performance and bring something new to it uh, because that's just how good good of an actress that she is. As for Florence Pugh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think back on, on the role, it's it's such a different one from either of the two other performances she has this year, you know, uh, between Midsommar and Fighting With My Family, you know, she is a, co she definitely is more childish in a way. And, and I think it's, it's a really interesting juxtaposition to have her play, you know, that childish character that you get in, in, you know, timeline, the earlier timeline versus the one who, you know, has been forced to grow up, uh, you know, and be with Aunt March in Europe and, and paint and kind of be kind of the the person in, in the March family who's going to provide for the family in a weird sense and have that onus put on her as the one who's going to have to marry well and provide, you know, for their mother, for Beth, you know, et cetera, and kind of provide for the rest of the family. And she's kind of thrust into that, which is something that, you know, she clearly states that she always wants in the earlier timeline, wants to be, you know, someone who marries you know, marry someone, you know, rich and interesting and famous and be this painter and be this housewife that you I described. I want to be her. great or nothing, she says. Exactly. She wants to be great or nothing. And I think <clears throat> and, and 
although I didn't love that line because it felt very on the nose in the sense of trying to be like, hey, I want to be exactly like Joe, who I think throughout the entire movie demonstrates that she wants to be, you know, wants to be the best version of herself, the best writer, or she doesn't want to be anything at all. I think that's so clearly demonstrated over the course of the film. It felt a little bit on the nose to have her say that uh, explicitly to kind of hammer home that she that she is jealous in some ways of, of Joe, but it still worked for me on the whole. And I think Florence Pugh's performance uh, is is excellent. Uh, even if um, again, I almost wanted more from the character. Like I, I got so much, especially it sounds like relative to yeah. to other versions of the movie. But be, I think because the performance is so good, I want so much more from it. Like I want more development in that kind of second timeline because ultimately you don't get too much development in that second. You know, you only get a you know three or four scenes of her. You know, in in Paris, right? You you know, you get the first scene where she runs into Laurie. And you get a couple more scenes after that, obviously, and then the kind of that climactic scene for her and Laurie's relationship. But I, I kind of just wanted more of of that character, and I think that speaks to how good Florence Pugh's uh, per- performance is. And I, and I don't think that wanting more is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the best performances are going to leave you satisfied, but wanting more, I think. And I think that's what this performance does. Uh, I, I think I said my piece on Emma Watson's performance um, and, and Eliza Scanlon's. I don't know if I have too much more to add because, but you know, as as much as they do have may, uh, maybe have more to do in this adaptation than other adaptations. Again, I think that they they are supporting roles ultimately yeah. uh, com- compared to those kind of you know two and then if you count Timothy Chalamet three kind of central performances to the narrative drive of the film. Laura Dern, excellent as always. I was a little bit confused, why, I guess, why people were saying this is a better performance than her performance in Marriage Story. I think that, you know, in many ways, they're I think they're quite similar in that they are one note. And that's not, I don't mean that in a bad way, but in Marriage Story, she's asked to kind of go over, you know, take it to a 12 constantly in all of her scenes. And she does a spectacular job, just like she does uh, in Big Little Lies with the, in a similar role. And then this one, I think she's asked to be a little bit more understated, a little bit softer, a little bit, uh, you know, more of a motherly role, I guess, is the, the best way to put it. And she does it really well, right? I, I don't even think of necessarily one being better than the other. I think of them as quite different. And she hits both notes, which speaks to her range as an actress and, and just how strong this cast is. I mean, Meryl Streep, the most forgettable person in this film by far. I think that she doesn't really have much second, much to second, do. Second year in a row, she has been the most forgettable part of a Christmas release with Mary Poppins Returns last year. Oh, God, I, I wasn't even sure what you were referring to at first. Yeah. But yeah, no, very. I mean, goodness, they could have cut that entire sequence out from Mary Poppins Returns. But anyway, I agree that I think the, the role or the, the character that surprised me the most was Chris Cooper's Mr. Lawrence. I think that was an excellent role. I have no idea what that one is like in other, film, other films. But honestly, I don't think you, you really get anything – uh, from Beth, if you don't get this relationship for, with with Mr. Lawrence, I mean that is that is what get, I think that is what gets you invested in that character, and, and the only thing that I felt like I had to hold on to for that character, because really in, in in the context of the family, she's really just kind of like supportive younger sister is what she feels like, you know, for the entire film. Other, you know, outside of that of that kind of yeah. nurtured relationship she has with with Mr. Lawrence. It, yeah, and I think it's interesting too though, talking about how Joe and Amy sort of clash because they have similar personalities. I think Joe and Beth have completely opposite personalities and because of that bond really closely in the movie. And I like the way that the movie portrayed the relationship between Joe and Beth particularly. Um I thought that um it was it was very touching ultimately in the same way that Mr. Lawrence and Beth's relationship was as well. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, I think, I mean, that, that is the majority of the cast. There's a couple other people here and there, obviously. And you talked about Mr. Brooks, which is uh, kind of also a nothing performance for me. 
um, not really asked to do too much. And there is, I guess, um, Professor, I'm forgetting the last name. Professor Bear, yeah. Professor Bear. Um, and I think that obviously Professor Bear, you know, you talk about in other adaptations how, you know, he's someone who shows up, you know, halfway through the last act of the film and you don't really get invested in him whatsoever before all of a sudden Joe is marrying him. And so we might as well, like, let's go ahead and talk about the ending. I think there are a couple other things that I want to talk about after the ending or maybe just one other thing that I want to talk about after the ending. But I think for me, like, this was one of the talking points that I felt like I saw online is that, you know, this ending is framed in a different way to make it feel a little bit different. And also, of course, because of the structure of the film happens and, and unfurls in a slightly different way. And Scott, I just want to get your thought first as, as someone who has been witness to other adaptations and other tellings of this, what you thought of how this changes, because one of the, th I guess, to lay out what the change is, yes, of course, you have the format change of how the story unfolds and you kind of have everything that's happening in the past with Beth's death. I guess we're doing spoilers. Whoops. Um, but, you know, Beth, of course, uh, 150 year old novel. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. When there are spoilers up these days, it's fine. You, you know, succumbs to is it Scarlet Fever, I believe a relapse of Scarlet Fever. Yeah, it's um, just she she basically the Scarlet Fever weakens her heart. So she's just able to she just becomes ill a lot more easily. I'm not sure yeah. ultimately what kills her, but it's just, you know, right. she, she, she dies of illnesses. Yeah. Exactly. She dies of an illness. And this is kind of happening in the in the prior time, uh, I guess, sorry, in the in the current timeline. Uh, meanwhile, you have kind of this culmination of Saoirse Ronan's Joe's character and Timothy Chalamet's Laurie's character kind of coming to its climactic finale in that, you know, of course, Laurie asking Joe to marry him and, and her saying, no, this is a horrible idea. We can't do this. I, I don't love you in that way. Uh, we would never last. And then it kind of follows up with, you know, in the in then the present timeline the conclusion of Amy and Laurie's relationship where they, you know, she, where Amy turns down, um, turn, turns down. I forget the guy's Fred name, but Vaughn. Fred Vaughn, uh, who is this kind of rich noble person. Uh, and then instead, uh, you know, betrothes herself, engages with, uh, gets engaged to Laurie. And at the, you know, this kind of balancing act of at the same time with Beth's death happening, Joe reconsiders everything that, you know, kind of questions all of her actions leading up to that point and how she's, you know, treated Laurie, how she's kind of interacted, I guess, with Amy in a way and, and questions just a lot of parts uh, of her life and decides that, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, revisit that, that in potential engagement and marriage to, to Laurie. Uh, obviously Amy and Laurie come back from, from Paris uh, at the news of Beth's, you know, death and Joe finds out that, you know what, this isn't, this isn't going to work out this way because, uh, you know, Amy and, and Laurie are going to be getting married. But at the same time, Professor Bear is brought, kind of led to the house, so to speak, uh, right before Saoirse Ronan's character, kind of uh, Joe, announces that, you know, she's not going to go back to New York. And kind of the carrot is being dangled, so to speak. And you get the climactic scene between them in the rain at the train station kissing. But it's framed in this way that's very different. It's framed in this way where back in New York, you have Joe at the publishing house where Tracy Letts is, of course, you know, the, the, the I guess, editor-in-chief. I don't know what you'd describe it. But basically, the person who's deciding what gets published and what doesn't get published. And he is forcing her to change the story that she wrote to include the central character, i.e. Joe, uh, to get married in the end. And it's this kind of ambiguous tale. It's like, is what you see on screen with this climactic scene of Professor Bear and Joe kissing in the rain and, you know, being married and becoming married, is that happening in real life or is this just happening in the story? Scott, what did you think of that telling? 
Yeah, no, it, it is really interesting. And going back to sort of the way you let in talking about Professor Bear, I think that, um, yes, he's underdeveloped here, particularly compared to the 94 version where I think Gabriel Byrne is able to do a little bit more with the character. But I think this movie, what the ending suggests is that maybe he's purposefully underdeveloped because um, because Alcott perhaps didn't want her character to marry anyone at all. And so maybe as a way of getting back at the publisher who ultimately forced her to um, to make Joe marry, she decided to sort of bring in this random character halfway through the novel for Joe to get married to instead of giving the people what they want and having, uh, you know, Joe marry Laurie, sort of her way of rebellion, despite having to conform to what the publisher ultimately wanted her to do. And I think that's an interesting, that, that bodes uh, interestingly for the character of Professor Bear. And speaking to that scene between him and Joe at in the rain, I think that uh, that has always been one of my favorite scenes. Like in the 94 version, that that is like the most romantic scene between Winona Ryder and Gabriel Byrne. I, I just love that scene. I When I heard they were changing the ending of the movie, I was like, oh, I hope they we really don't lose that scene. Uh, and ultimately, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, you're talking about it being ambiguous. And I, I think my interpretation from what I understand is is a little different from what a lot of people seem to be saying about the ending, but you, you talk about it being ambiguous, whether, you know, Joe ultimately marries, um, marries Professor Bear and ends up at the school and, you know, in Aunt March's old home, as we see her at the end of the, the movie, or whether she simply doesn't marry him, you know, decides to uh, live by herself, you know, but succeeds as a writer, right? And I think for me, where I come down, is that what the movie suggests is that ultimately it doesn't matter what ending you, you know, accept for Joe. It doesn't matter whether you think she gets married to Professor Bear or not. What matters is the fact that um, Louisa May Alcott created Joe, this character of Joe, uh, and whatever time, whatever she choo chooses in the end, that's the important thing, right? That she is choosing. And I think back to that scene in the attic. Um, where Joe basically says to Marmy that, uh, you know, I'm so sick of, I'm so sick of being told that, uh, you know, love is all a woman is fit for, uh, but I'm so lonely. And like that, that is the type, those are like the conflicting, that's the tension that I think is at the heart of Joe's narrative throughout the movie, right? Like she wants to have success and be a writer, but she also wants companionship. And she is living in a world that tells her that women cannot have both of those things. They have to have either one or the other. You have to be, you know, a professional, a writer, but then you can't, you can't be married or you have to be married and basically end up like Meg March, right? Like you have to be a housewife. You have to stay home and take care of the children. You can't have a career. You can't be a writer. Um, and so I think that th that's, those are the competing ideals in Joe's narrative throughout. Um, and then I also think about that scene with Amy and Laurie, right, where where Amy says that um, I believe that we have some choice, um, some say in who we love. It's not just something that happens to us. And I think that is ultimately all of that bears on the ending for me, because, yes, maybe, you know, if we accept the ending, right, that that Joe marries Professor Bear, maybe that's not the ending that Alcott herself wanted, Um but at the same time, she is choosing, right? Like they even go so far as to have them chase Professor Bear to the to the train station, which is not something that happens in the other adaptations, sort of giving Joe an active role in whether she ends up with Professor Bear or not. Like she has to choose to run him down in the rain at the train station if she wants to be with him. And 
So ultimately, right, like she is given a choice, just like Amy is saying, she's given a choice in who she loves. She ends up with the person that she chooses um, because she loves him, and that is Professor Bear. Uh, and so even if you accept that ending, again, it may not be the one that Alcott wanted, it's a satisfactory ending for Joe's character because it doesn't sacrifice anything that she has stood for throughout the movie, in my opinion. She, she has wanted companionship throughout the movie. At the same time, if you don't accept that ending, right, like it doesn't matter because Joe is still the person that she wants to be, whether she is ha has companionship or not. Like she has, she finds companionship with her family, with her sisters, with everyone at the school, um, and so that is solving that loneliness problem. And she's able to be a successful writer in both endings. So I think it's sort of a right, like it. The ending has its cake and eats it too, right? Because it's kind of saying whichever ending you like, you could, you know, you could choose your ending, choose your ending, you know, whichever one you like, that's the ending. But at the same time, I think it works because the theme of the movie seems to be that women at this time weren't allowed to have their cake and eat it too, right? Like they they had to do one or the other. And so I think what Gerwig accomplishes here and and really gives tribute again to Alcon and the character that she created is by saying, you know, whichever ending you want, like that that ending works because of this character that that Alcott created and she is a strong and independent woman regardless of whether she marries professor bear or not but professor bear is in the 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 second ending that you're talking about though like he's in that scene at the school isn't he i don't think we ever see him there maybe i mistook someone else in the cast then for him so, but so in the old adaptations right like that's what happens in the 94 adaptation Joe basically says that she's opening a school and asks Professor Bear to come, you know, teach at the school. But I don't remember actually seeing him in the school scene at the end of this movie. I even if he is, I don't think it's necessarily suggested that they got married. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's fair. I think I think ultimately I'd probably need to rewatch the movie to yeah. to get a better sense of, of what I think of that very last scene. But overall, I think that, you know, what what at least the first half of what you're saying, like I 100 percent. 100% agree with and how it this is probably I mean again I don't have the comparison point of the novel or other adaptations the idea of you know what you're talking about like Joe has to actively go out and, and empowers uh, I guess again it's hard to say because like what is it out like the author you know Joe as the author empowers Joe as the character in the in the novel uh, on screen the novel on screen to you know chase after and choose this person uh, when you know it, it there's a different telling of the story that is, you know, her, you know, love happening to her in the form of Laurie. Like, 100% agree with that. I think it empowers women in a way. And I think that the way she frames the ending around, like, kind of, some people have called it, like, an inception-like ending. Like, you don't know what's real and what's and what's uh, what's the dream or what's the, what's the story, what's the novel that she's written. I think that works really well, too, in the sense that, you know, my initial take and my initial read is that, you know, it it's Greta Gerwig trying to say, you know what, like, if, if your dream is, you know, societal norms and everything to happen, here's here's your fairy tale ending. And here is the person that like this is the real life Joe. This is like the real person that Joe is. You know, she's the person who is willing to sell out, a, you know, sell out a little bit and tell the story, uh, you know, this kind of non-traditional story of two people getting married and falling in love so that she can have something that is her own and that is hers. And, you know, that goes back to the, you know, going back to the scene with Tracy Letts in the publishing house saying like, you know, I, I want to own the copyright to my book. And so I, I kind of tie it, tie it in there in that way. I would, you know, with you having said that and knowing a little bit now more about, about, 
the novel and that I, it's probably worth a rewatch. I mean, one, cause it's a good movie, but a rewatch just to reevaluate what, what maybe I think of that final scene, because that is one of the parts that was like a little bit confusing walking away is that final scene where she opens the schoolhouse, not because it, it's not a logical telling of the story of opening that schoolhouse and doing, you know, with the Lawrence, you know, that kind of that Lawrence kind of estate, so to speak, and opening up the school in that way, but because I wasn't quite sure what to make and what that meant in the context of the scene right before it, right in the, in the publishing house and in, in, you know, uh, her and Professor Bear getting married. And if I if I may, like I think I think that's the point is that it is purposely ambiguous whether maybe she ends up with Professor Bear in that schoolhouse scene, right? Because the point is not whether she ends up with Professor Bear. It's the fact that she is surrounded by you know her family and the people she loves and that loneliness. And she's doing you know, the thing so, she wants to, do. so to speak. Right, it is cured. So like right. So even if you even if you you don't you know accept the romantic ending. Like mm -hmm. Joe is still happy. Joe is still getting what she wants ultimately in the end. And maybe she's exactly choosing that. Maybe the, she's not. Right. Yeah. And and from the you know, being kind of the one owning those negotiations in the publishing house with Tracy Lutz's character shows that she's getting what she wants. I mean, right. maybe not hundred percent what she wants, she's compromising a little bit, but ultimately she has gotten to publish her book. And, you know, that's what you're seeing kind of in this interwoven story of it, it, the book being bound, which I thought was a really interesting uh visual sequence. Yeah. It was uh, really, to be really yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And I think the the last one is about Professor Bear, just to just to give my thoughts on on that, you know, that he is a character. It still feels rushed to me again. Maybe, you know, to, something that you were saying just a, a minute ago resonates with me is that, you know, that's the point. He feels rushed. He's kind of coming out of nowhere. Maybe the the marriage, if that is the end you accept, doesn't make sense because this character is kind of out of left field and doesn't make sense because that's still the way I felt even with the new retelling. Yes, I'm introduced to the character in the first five. 10 minutes of the movie but he's completely gone until the, until the end of the film yeah and i like i it doesn't make any sense to me why she would choose this person and the only context that we would get is that this person is harsh to her and and you know what she's written and i'm like get look like i i get that that like that is the stand-in for like their relationship deepening and developing uh and that kind of the focal point of what you'd point to if you said okay this is this is why, why or how or when she fell in love with him but it, it doesn't that that whole relationship doesn't work for me but again if that's the point I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, like I said, I think it's very possible that that is the point. At the same time, I wouldn't say that I have no understanding of why she ends up with this character. Like, I think that that scene that you mentioned there is important because it's not necessarily that he's being harsh to her, right? It's like, it's that they're intellectual equals. Sure, um, that's a good point, yeah. And, and so I think that, like that she that is the person joe deserves she deserves to be with someone who is her intellectual equal not with laurie who is kind of again an overgrown child at times so that's how i interpret that yeah no and i think and i think that's a fair and reasonable interpretation i just think that it's very undercooked uh, on yeah. the screen and and not developed and, very well and, and i think you would probably like the 1994 version then in, in that regard because there are more scenes with joe and professor bear like there's the opera scene right in in this movie but they're sitting separately in this opera scene at in in the in the 94 version professor bear actually invites joe to the opera they sit together they actually kiss while they're at the opera there's just there's more scenes between them together it, there's actually you know there's the scene where he critiques her but then before she ever goes back to new york or b before she ever goes back home there's another scene between them in which they kind of like she kind of apologizes for her reaction and he kind of you know apologizes a little bit there's more there so i think you would like that a little bit better yeah, i think that would help a little bit what gerwig was going for here this interpretation probably like makes a little bit more sense i think that's fair no i think that i think that makes sense and i think from that really like from that relationship building standpoint certainly more more context there would, would be helpful because one of the, i mean one of the reasons why i didn't feel super invested in joe from the earlier parts is that you know right 
know, in that scene, I guess, between her and, you know, she's giving him her work to critique and to give his thoughts on. I just, I mean, she just came out as like such a whiny, you know, um, like snowflake of a person who, who can't take criticism, which in the context of, of the whole, of the whole movie makes a lot more sense, right? Again, it makes a lot more sense, but isolated in context when that isn't happening towards the end of the film, uh, I think that it makes, it makes it harder to parse through and, and makes me feel less invested in that character because she just seems, seems kind of a, as a sensitive person who can't take criticism. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe part of the idea is that she's lacking inspiration for her writing there sure. while she's in New York and, you know, she has to go through all of these experiences and particularly Beth dying, I think is kind of what spurs her on. Um, Certainly. So yeah. I, I, again, I didn't have the same reaction to it, but I yeah. can't separate like my past relationship with the story of little women from this mm -hmm. so i i accept that i may have taken some of that into this character and like already been already predisposed to like the character regardless of maybe how she behaves in the first part of the movie yeah and, and it's also part of the, i mean part, part of the character might be someone who is you know at their wits end with their situation in life and, yeah. then, and then finding a resolution for that so there you have it uh i think that that's all really that i have to talk about for little women so with that with that what's your favorite scene or moment from little women Man, this is tough. Um, I, I am going to go with that scene between Amy and Laurie, um, where Amy Amy talks about, uh, you know, I believe we have some say in, in who we love. It's not just something that happens to us. I I just like the confrontation that occurs between these two characters. And we see how much Amy has grown as a character. She talks about marriage being an economic proposition and that, yeah, Laurie, maybe you have a choice in this, but we don't really have a choice in this. We have to we have to marry because of uh what it means financially and and we see that played out with meg right like she 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 doesn't have the financial um resources to support her family like she ha she only has what her husband is making um she because she herself like has to take care of the children she has to stay at home she can't be out there earning money for her family as well and that's an interesting point i think just because that's Gerwig suggesting that, oh, you want the fairy tale ending where she gets married, but maybe the maybe the fairy tale ending isn't always the fairy tale ending. Maybe, you know, the life as a married woman is hard um, in the particular time period that they're living in. And I think that's what Amy is really confronting in this particular scene with Laurie. And I think, like I said, Florence Pugh's performance is the standout here. And this is her standout scene that she gets. So it's probably my favorite. But, man, it's hard to pick because every scene is just spectacular, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm going to pick a, a kind of a sequence of scenes. So, and I think because I think that they're wed so closely together for Joe's story, even though they are slightly separated in time in the film. And the first is, is on the beach with Beth, uh, right kind of right before Beth dies. I I love that's that an, yeah, that's an amazing scene. And I think that paired with the scene between Saoirse Ronan and Laura Dern, where, you know, essentially this is where she's where Joe has kind of entered her frenzy of writing. And then, you know, Marmy brings up the meal uh, for her while she has all the pages laid on the floor and they have their mm -hmm. conversation. I think that those two, uh, when you put them together, I mean, separate, fine, but when you put them together really make for the best pair of moments uh, in the film. And I think that they go together perfectly for, for Joe's story. And beautiful. Yeah. Scenes. Again, Ronan's acting in that scene is just off the charts. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Incredible. All right, Scott, let's post score on it. Best movie of the year. 10 out of 10. Yeah. I expected no less from our conversation, and uh, shockingly, I'm looking at your top ten list right now. Even though you said it's best movie of the year, I noticed that we won't be talking about it tomorrow. So that's a shame. <laughs> no, uh, for me, uh, it's it's a really great film. Again, it's it's going to be a little bit lower than a ten for me, just because of maybe the fact that I didn't have that appreciation coming into it. Thirty four minutes, Scott, uh, and but it's still a good score. It's an eight point eight. 
All right. With that, I think that should do it for our discussion of Little Women. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we won't be talking about news. We won't be talking about trailers. We'll be talking about another movie, uh, but one with quite different sensibilities than Little Women. And that's Uncut Gems. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Look at Scott. Scott, as promised, will now be diving into our second film of the episode, Uncut Gems. Written and directed by Josh and Benny Safdie, Uncut Gems is a drama suspense thriller that stars Adam Sandler in the lead role of New York City jeweler Howard Ratner, who is a man always on the cusp of his biggest score. Deep in debt, though, and seemingly juggling knives while balancing a house of cards, Howard owes $100,000 to his loan shark brother-in-law, Arno, played by Eric Bogosian, which Howard plans to pay off via the auction of a valuable Ethiopian black opal and also a series of uh, nothing short of outlandish bets. Meanwhile, his family life is falling apart as his wife, Dina, played by Adina Menzel, plans to leave him after the upcoming Passover celebration, and as his relationship with his girlfriend and employee, Julia, played by, hmm, name similarity again, newcomer Julia Fox, is constantly riding a roller coaster. Scott, I think that's really all the lead up to this conversation I think you get, because anything further than that really just starts to spin things out of control, kind of like the movie in some way, in a, in a good way. Uh, but we'll stop there. So, Scott, do the Safdie brothers tell this frenetic, chaotic, and anxiety-inducing story with expert precision and exhilarating delivery, or does their attempt at a cinematic anxiety attack ultimately fall flat? Hey, you forgot the biggest name similarity of all, which is, of course, that Kevin Garnett. Kevin Garnett. Was, yeah. Kevin Garnett. Um, <laughs> yeah, Scott, you, you know, you mentioned the phrase anxiety attack there. And I think in talking about this movie and in reading about this movie, the phrase that keeps coming up, the descriptor that keeps coming up is anxiety inducing. And while I think that that is an accurate description, probably, I, I want to like shy away from that a little bit because i think it just sounds like the movie makes it sound like the movie is a chore to watch and that um it's just going to stress you out um and you know ultimately not really be a satisfying experience which i don't think is my my reaction at all in fact we've seen the movie twice right yeah. like we, each of us have seen the movie twice and i don't think that that's something we would do if this was just you know some stress trip that is just going to it you will know. stress you out, though. It will yeah, stress yeah. You bring out. you it's to not a chore to watch. Yes, but it, it stresses you out in the way that a good thriller does, right? Like yeah, it, it puts you on the edge of your seat. It has you gripped at what is going to happen next. Um, and so, if you like like thrillers, if you like suspense movies, you you won't you you will know what we mean when we say anxiety inducing. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think for some people, it's been a bad thing, right? Like the cinema score is a C plus for this movie. So, um, well, we I, can talk about why that might be. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. some of it may be that parents took their kids to see a Christmas Adam Sandler movie and what they saw instead was uncut gems. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, Scott, this is a, another one of the year's best movies in my opinion. Um, it is a nonstop thrill ride. Um, there, there are some, I, I say nonstop there. Now there are some, uh, uh, you know, a few introspective, a few quieter moments, I think in the movie, which I do appreciate, right? Cause uh, otherwise it is just relentless, particularly the last half hour or so is just relentless. And a lot of that comes from, again, the character of Howard played by Adam Sandler and the fact that he's just making bad choice after bad choice. And even, even as, uh, as, you know, despicable and maybe unlikable and irredeemable Howard may be, we can't, we can't look away. Like we can't tear our eyes away because there's just like this, uh, sordid fascination with like 
what he is doing and whether he's going to get away with it. And there's a shot at the ending of the movie. This is not a spoiler, but um, that someone has a reaction to something that Howard does that I think really sums up that I think really sums up um, how we as the, the audience feels about Howard. And I'll, I'll speak more about that, what that is when we get into spoilers. But um, again, you really don't want this movie spoiled for you. No, you, you absolutely do not try to try to know as little as possible. But there, there is, again, that sordid sort of fascination with uh, Howard and his life and his series of poor choices. And is he ultimately going to uh, there's the actual bets which he's making. But then there's kind of the metaphorical bets with, you know, he's he's uh, cheating on his wife. And um, uh, well, it's know, unclear if he's cheating on his. I that's mean, true. I it seems like it, she yeah. kind of knows about it. But but anyway, oh, like, she definitely knows about it. Her, her his kids don't know. Um, yeah. But there, there's all these other sort of choices that he makes that are not like literally bets on games. They're like bets on uh, life. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so this movie um, is it's it's very fast paced and it um, like I said, it's a nonstop thrill ride. And I have to give a lot of credit to Adam Sandler and the whole cast, really. I think I think the supporting performances here aren't getting enough love. But um, Sandler's manic energy, like right, like he's not bringing anything particularly new that we haven't seen from Sandler in the past to this character. But I think the Safties know how to to harness that manic energy and to channel it into like they make a movie that is manic, right? Like, so it's not Adam Sandler doesn't seem like he is at a 12 while everyone else is at a six. Like it matches the frenetic pace of the movie and the score by Daniel yeah. Lopatine, which I think is one of my favorite scores. It's uh, it's overbearing without being overbearing. If that makes sense. Like you, you don't necessarily like here. It's there like a, like a Hans Zimmer, like inception score where it's just like overbearing everything. But like it is it is having an effect on you without you even realizing it. it is increasing the tension in particular scenes without you realizing it because of, you know, these sort of twinkly synths that are uh, dominating the score. And I think the other interesting decision that the Sappies make is right, like layering the the speech over layering the speech over the music. Right. So that so like the music is part basically part of the background. It doesn't sound like you're listening to a score that was composed separately to the movie. It honestly sounds like there is music going on in the background of whatever scene that, that, uh, that is going on. And I think, again, that adds to that whole, like the music is the wallpaper to the scene. You, you don't necessarily notice it there. It's there, but it's affecting how you feel. And uh, yeah, it's, it's an outstanding film. And I think I, I'm a fan. I like good time, which is um, the Sappy's last movie, but this for me is a major step forward for them. Um, and again, another smash for A24. They've been killing it yet again this year. Yeah. And you talk you talk about smashes and, and a step forward for the Safdie brothers. I mean, this is also kind of yeah, I was listening to the A24 podcast, actually, uh, just just last week after watching the movie for the second time. And it's a conversation between them and, and Paul Thomas Anderson talking about Adam Sandler, basically, in, in a dramatic perform in, in drama performances. And the Safdie brothers talked a lot about how, you know, they made movies before Uncut Gems. You know, always wondering, you know, if we mess this movie up, we won't get to make Uncut Gems. Like, obviously, it wasn't called that then, but they weren't going to be able to make that movie that because they've been working on this film for, for, over, years. for over a decade. Yeah, they've been writing this story for over a decade. And I think that speaks to the polish and the finished product that you get in this film, because this feels, you know, yes, it's two hours and 15 minutes, I think is what it is. But it is it feels so refined and so polished. And every scene matters. Uh, well, okay, almost every scene matters. I think yeah. that I think that they could actually cut the first scene of the movie, um, like the the opening sequence of the movie. But that's just my opinion. Um, 
And and from but besides that, I mean, everything here is just so refined, so polished. You talk about the overlapping dialogue. I mean, I've never felt so stressed out by just people talking in a movie <laughs> the, the, other than this one. I mean, this movie just really that like that's how it builds tension. It's one of the incredible parts is that yes, it builds tension via what's happening in the film by these out like I talked about outlandish bets that Sandler is making, you know, both literally in terms of putting money down on basketball games, but also um, you know, in life, more metaphorically placing bets. I think the decisions and the choices that he makes are just so crazy, and they build tension in that way because you're, you know, wondering, you know, will 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 he hit this bet? Will he score? Uh, and I think the the movie plays around with that a lot in really clever, interesting ways. But they also build tension with it. If you think about it as building tension across scenes, they build tension within the scenes through their dialogue and and the script that they've written and how they, you know, again, I don't, I. It just seems so crazy to me that to to think that in some situations I think there's no way they wrote all that dialogue because it's just them throwing words across each other to the point where you don't even hear what anyone's saying sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that when you actually go back and you think about it, like, well, there's no way they didn't write all of that. It had to have all been written. Uh, and it's just one of I think it's one of the more remarkable things. You know, I think I, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Perry Nemiroff at Collider, but I, I know it was one of the things that I was thinking kind of more abstractly after leaving the film for the first time is that I'm not sure any other director or directors could direct the film the way the Safdie brothers did. I think that it's just one of the more remarkable directing feats, I think of 2019. And that's in a year of some pretty remarkable directing feats uh, between Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. You know, people have mixed feelings that, or some people have mixed feelings about Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I think that, you know, kind of, and then Greta Gerwig's Little Women too, the movie we just talked about. I think that, you know, those for me are kind of the four standout directorial performances uh, of the year. I mean, you could say Joker for Todd Phillips stands out in that it was just so poorly directed, uh, in my opinion, but that's neither here nor there. But I think that it, this is just one of the top movies. And, and again, like if you look at directorial performances over the course of the whole decade, I mean, I think that it, it's probably up there in the top 10 list for that as well. And I just listed four directors from this year. I think this has just been such an incredibly strong directed year of films uh, in, in that sense. And, and it, it just really stands out in, in, for that because I think that as much as Adam Sandler is the star of the movie, you're, you know, he's going to be the face that you see on the poster, you know, I think and also a very striking poster for that. Too. I really like the poster for this film. But the Safdie brothers are are whether or not you're are the reason you're going to like or dislike this film and what they are able to accomplish uh, in the, in their direction. And and that being said, I think that now is the is a time to switch over and talk about Adam Sandler because with the exception of two scenes, Adam Sandler is in every scene in this film and he really puts everything on his back. I mean, again, besides that opening sequence, I talked about that. I think that they could even cut entirely. And then uh, again, for the sake of spoilers, I won't allude to, but the fact that we follow another character uh, to a different location uh, in the, in, towards the climax of the movie still being cut in between uh, scenes uh, with Adam Sandler in it. I think that uh, he really is kind of the person who bears the whole burden of this film. Uh, on the screen, Scott. So what did you think of Adam Sandler's Howard Ratner? Yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic performance. And, you know, I am very openly someone who is not a fan of Adam Sandler's work. Um, I have joked, I mean, I say jokes, but honestly, I'm serious about it when I have been saying that um, this is probably the first good movie he's made, in my opinion. Um, and it only took him 30 years. But I have to give him some credit because Right. Like there are not a lot of actors who could make as many bad movies in a row as Sandler has and yet still 
be on the forefront of Hollywood. And I think the reason for that is because people like Adam Sandler. Um, it's not necessarily that they think he's making great cinema uh, or, or great movies, but uh, he there is something magnetic. There is something he has a charisma on screen um, that is able to elevate, you know, I mean, in in the eyes of some, elevate the sophomoric material that he has given. Like, I think people go to see these movies not because, oh, I'm really interested in, you know, this Jack and Jill, the plot of this movie. I think they go see it because it has Adam Sandler, right? And they like Adam Sandler. They know what they're going to get from Adam Sandler. And Adam Sandler makes them laugh. I am not one, one such person, but... Like, I can't deny the fact that he has remained in Hollywood. He has remained an A-list actor because he does have this charisma. Um, and no one else, there are not many others who could survive as many, uh, you know, badly reviewed films as as Sandler has. Um, and I think that that is very important to his role as Howard here because, again, like I said up top, I think this is a character that we shouldn't be rooting for, right? Like he's, he's irredeemable the way that he treats the people around him. The one quickly listen to call it the, the most loathsome character in a film yeah. of all time. The irresponsible, I think that's a little extreme, but yeah. the irresponsible choices that he makes, right? Like the fact that these, he's trying to pay back this bet that you mentioned to, to Arno, the, the entire movie and, and Arno's goons. And at multiple times in the movie, he has enough, uh, sorry, I said debt or bet. I think I meant debt, but he's trying to pay back the, this debt to them. And multiple times in the movie, he has the amount of money that he needs to pay them back, but he just doesn't pay them back. Right? Like he he goes and makes another gamble um, with the money because this is how he wins um, by by continuing to to bet and by continuing to try and get uh, his big break that will hopefully help him solve all of the issues that he has. But of course, even no, there's no amount of money in the world which probably could solve all of the issues that this character has. But despite this, despite the fact that he makes all these poor choices and we shouldn't like him as a character, we are, again, are entranced by what is going on. We want to follow this character. And that's because uh, Adam Sandler has such a, he has that charisma. He has this larger than life personality that I think suits this film and this character of Howard really well. Um, and so I think he, he deserves a lot of credit for why the movie works because I think his performance is, is pitched at, at, at a level that matches the direction that the Safdie brothers uh, give to the film. Um, and so, I, yeah, I was really imp impressed by the performance. It may not have a lot of nuance at times. He may be, you know, the, the, the proverbial bull in a China shop as, as Adam Sandler often is, but so is Howard, right? Like that's the way that he goes through life. And so in that regard, I think, you know, fan of him or not, uh, Adam Sandler is the perfect choice to play this role. I mean, I haven't seen all of Adam Sandler's movies. I haven't, especially haven't seen all of his dramatic performances, but I mean, easily, easily the best I've ever seen Adam Sandler. I mean, I watched Murder Mystery, which is on Netflix earlier this year and absolute dumpster fire of a film, like just terrible, terrible film. And then he, at the same year, does something like this. And this, is, I mean, this is in my mind, his best performance that he's done. I don't know if it's the first time he's ever made a good movie or ever put in a good performance. I mean, people are, are pretty high on, on punch drunk love, but I, it certainly is the best since then, at the very least, I would think. And that's because this performance is, yes, it, it is tailored to his persona as an actor. At the same time, I think that there is some nuance to this role. I think that, not yes, most of the time, 90 plus percent of the time, Howard is at an 11 and stays there. I mean, he's he's constantly there. But then there are a couple moments, I think, of 
one in particular is during kind of the Passover dinner when he's trying to like have a conversation with Dina where he does try it, it, he does inject a little bit of nuance he does inject you know something a little bit extra and a little bit different than you get for the rest of the film and I think that it shows that yes he still is Howard in those moments because he sounds ridiculous obviously if you put it in the context of everything that's happening around him in the film and the fact that he thinks that Dina might might take him back is absurd but I think it, it is new it does add nuance to the role to deliver you know those particular lines and that particular scene in the way that it does happen and so I, I think that the the nuance does exist in moments but of course most of the film is at that 11 is that that you know high <laughs> high octane thrill thriller suspense level that you'd expect from an Adam Sandler dramatic character yeah, and I think that scene with Dina is interesting, right? Because like the way that I look at it is that this is at a point in the movie when Julia, he and Julia are on the outs, right? Like she, she has he, he has sort of dumped her, and she has basically has put his apartment on Craigslist as retaliation. Um, and so he is faced with the idea that oh, he might be losing both his wife and his mistress now, uh, and his girlfriend. Uh, and so he is, you know, desperately pleading with uh, Dina to take him back. And I think that shows maybe that. Howard needs companionship. He needs someone to be there for him because he likes the challenge. He likes the thrill of being told maybe that he can't do something or that he shouldn't do something. He shouldn't make this bet. He couldn't uh, make this bet. Um, and without, you know, someone there um, telling him that, then, uh, you know, he, he, he doesn't have, he loses the thrill for it. He loses the passion for gambling and everything. And so I think that that's, that's why that scene is kind of crucial to the movie because it shows that he is sort of faced with potential loneliness and it's not something that he really takes to. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that take. And I think that it, it also just, it gives you more of a window into this character because this character is, I mean, loneliness in this character is not something that you think about, but there, I mean, even the scene kind of right, not right before this, but one of the scenes before this is after kind of this kind of huge kind of fight that he has with, with, with Julia both in this club where the weekend is playing, but also outside the club when they get in a shouting match and you see him go back to, you know, not even his apartment. He doesn't go back to his apartment. He goes back to his office and sleeps on the couch by himself. And the fact that he has a pillow uh, in the drawer, I think it really says something interesting about that character in that quiet moment. Cause there's no lines that are spoken after, of course the fight ends. He just, you know, gets in this, this Uber, or this, ta I think it was a taxi and, you know, goes back to, to this, to his office and, and it's all in, and well, it's not in silence cause there is the score in the background, but, you know, without any without any lines, and I think that uh, is a really good. Um, it, retrospectively, I think that scene works really well to then understand better why this scene at the Passover celebration is happening. But overall, just to talk about the character, I guess as a whole, I mean, it's a great performance, and I think that the climactic finale. You talk about Howard as a character, you know, being someone who you just can't tear your eyes away from. You can't, you know, I don't think anyone's going to like the character of Howard, but I mean, he is impossible to not be invested in i think in the way that this scene feels in the movie whether you're invested in him to fail or you're invested in him to win you are invested in howard you don't not care about what happens to this person because he's just so crazy he's just so crazy in his own howard ratner way and, and i think that speaks to both how the character is written but also how adam sandler is able to play him all right supporting cast there's a lot of people here uh i mean there's a handful of people here. i shouldn't say there's a lot it's not necessarily a huge supporting cast but there is julia fox who you know we kind of already started to talk about a little bit uh playing his girlfriend slash mistress however you want to think about her uh she plays julia there's also lakeith stanfield who plays is it oh my goodness jamani 
Damani. There we go. Wow, I'm on a roll today. Uh, plays Damani. Then there's Kevin Garnett playing uh, the very stoic figure of Kevin Garnett in this film and does a very good job. I will add maybe one of the standouts in the supporting cast. But then also, uh, finally, Adina Menzel playing Dina here, Scott. The supporting cast of those four people, if there's someone else that you'd like to mention, of course, you're welcome to. But what did you think of the supporting cast? Yeah, no, I think for me, Julia Fox and Kevin Garnett are the standouts. I honestly love Julia Fox's performance. One of my favorite supporting performances of the year. And it is a legitimate supporting performance. Like, I think this is the type of performance we should be considered for a supporting Oscar, not like J-Lo's performance in Hustlers, for example, which is definitely more of a lead. But uh, that's neither here nor there. I think it's a really good performance because she is the heart and soul of this movie in many ways, right? Like we are talking about how Howard is an unlikable and irredeemable character. I don't think you can say the same about Julia. She um, is an unfortunate character, perhaps. uh, But I think we really we really empathize with her, right? Because she is in a relationship with this guy who you know, maybe thinks he has her best interests at at heart, but really doesn't. Um, And she actually seems to care about him. Um, That's one of the interesting directions that I think that this character takes, right? Like you, I kind of expected that, you know, she's, she's this, uh, she she works at his store. She's his mistress. She's at the club. She's, you know, dancing with the weekend. She goes into the bathroom with the weekend or whatever. I can, you kind of expect her to be kind of just looking for a sugar daddy, almost uh, this character and that, and Howard is, is her sugar daddy. But you, you see, like, there, there are different implications for this character. She actually does seem to care about Howard, repulsive though he may be, um, for whatever reason. She likes this guy, um, and I, I love her scenes that she gets towards the end, right, where she's following the bet that Howard has made, and her reactions are very authentic. Um, yes, because she's she's possibly getting paid out of it but um i think i think it also comes from the fact that she she loves howard and she tells howard that and there's this other like sort of sexual scene that happens between them where he's like watching her from the closet but she doesn't realize that and she's basically like follow you know they're sexting and she's like following what he is telling her to do and so it like kind of speaks to the fact that um she she's not just toying with him she's not just playing with him for his money she like actually feels something for howard and so i think that we empathize with that because howard obviously doesn't have her best interests at heart he's he's making decisions that you know are putting her livelihood in in danger too right because she we learned about her background some and the fact that she doesn't really have any family that howard is kind of her only family um and so that i think also helps us empathize with her um and but and ultimately you know we feel like if if need be, if if the opportunity came along, Howard would probably leave her for a, you know a better opportunity that that came along, and so I think that uh, helps us empathize with her as well. So I was really impressed by this performance. She's never acted before. She's a- actually just a friend of the Safdie brothers. They've been wanting to put her in something for a while, um, and they they got the opportunity here, and I'm really glad that they did because I think she is uh, along with Sandler a real standout here, and I, I think the same for Kevin Garnett. Um, I really like what he brings to this character character, what he brings to himself um, in this movie, uh, because for number one, he's very committed to the role, right? Like this is not your typical athlete performance of I'm just going to show up. You know, I'm LeBron James. I'm, I'm just coasting off of I'm my train name, wrecked. name yeah. and image. Right. Yeah. I I'm not going to really I'm, I'm not interested in what this movie is doing. I'm just interested in the exposure for myself. That's not the case with Kevin Garnett. He re- he's really buying into everything that's going on in the movie. Right? Like this is 
it's an independent film. It's 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 a offbeat film. Um, and so for for a professional athlete like Kevin Garnett to look at this movie and say, yeah, I, re I really buy into what's going on here. It, I mean, speaks a lot to Kevin Garnett, maybe, but I, I really appreciated his commitment to the role. And I also like the sort of satirical edge to the character and the fact that he's he first of all, he's not afraid to make fun of himself, I think, um, as being, you know, this overly superstitious athlete who believes that this opal that that Howard has is, you know, the key to victory is the key to him having a good performance in, you know, his playoff series against the Sixers. Um, and at the same time, he's also satirizing like other athletes. Right. And there there are weird rituals and weird superstitions and the things that they think uh, are responsible for their athletic success or ability. Um and so I really like that edge to the character as well. I think he goes toe to toe with Sandler in some scenes. He's a good audience surrogate as some, someone who is really just sort of confounded by Howard's way of life and um, tries to caution him away from some of the choices that that he makes, but you know ultimately is unsuccessful. Um, and so I was I, again, I was I was impressed. I didn't know whether this was kind of a stunt casting putting him in here, but it's clearly not. He, he gives a a layered performance, which uh, is all credit to him and to the Safties for uh, picking him out as the you know the particular person that they wanted uh, in this role. So good on him. Yeah, I wonder how many how many other members of the Celtics they screen tested. Uh, for this and, and I mean, you know, the, the actual outcomes of the games do matter, I guess, for, for the plot. So I guess they did have to have Garnett, who, you know, maybe scores a certain number of points in this game. But yeah, still, the fact that he they got him is something. Yeah, yeah. In the A24 podcast, they talked about how, the, the, depending on which Jewish, they could have done different parts of the movie, like, depending on which player or which team they were casting from, they could have done a different Jewish holiday. Like, they were talking about how some things would have been interchangeable, um, and they could have, like, mixed and matched so to speak but you're right like it, it was very critical for the story the way that they told it here that kevin garnett both be in the movie and be good and he was good he really it surprised me uh it really did surprise me how good he was and and how real it felt like yes he's playing himself but he's playing himself in front of a camera in a way that uh, you know being a professional basketball player he's not usually put in front of the camera in that way and so i think he just does a spectacular job and i want him to be in more things like bottom line i want him to yeah. do to do some more stuff like I don't expect him to lead a, to be a lead role in a movie. But if he has a supporting, you know, a minor supporting role like this and brings what he brought to this to another movie, I'd love to see him in it because he's spectacular. In it. But I agree with you. Julia Fox really is the standout. And I think one of the one of the parts of that scene that you're talking about that really, I think, shows that she's truly invested in Howard is not just the, you know, the, the sexting component of it, too. But it's actually to me, it was the other thing that she kind of brought to that scene, which was the fact that she like stopped at Smith and Walensky and like brought like brought him the same food that he already also got himself. Yeah, uh, I think that kind of, you know, really conveyed it to me in, in a similar way to what you're describing there and, and really shows that it's not just, you know, it's not just that she wants him to be her sugar daddy. Do I think that's a component of it? Yeah, I probably do think that's a component of it. But I, I think that there is a level of care that maybe extends beyond what I expect Howard's level of care to be for that. Like maybe that's how the relationship started, but she has actually, yeah. you know, developed feelings for him now. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with that. Uh, but again, some of that's a little bit of speculation because that's not, I mean, that's not explored to the, to the fullest. Uh, so to speak, because that's, because that's not, uh, that's not part of the, that's not it's part not of the, the movie's about. Yeah. yeah, it's not what the movie's about because the movie is ultimately about Howard. But yeah, those performances are good. I think that Lakeith Stanfield continues to show that he can do just about any role. I mean, I've seen him in a, it feels like I've seen him in a lot of things this year. I can't remember all of them, but, you know, going from something like, you know, someone great, which was a Netflix uh, rom-com that he played a very minor role in, um, which I think he does an excellent job in to something like this. I mean, he's playing entirely different characters 
and I love it. I love what he's doing. I can't wait to see him in more stuff. I can't wait to, for him to start getting even more lead roles than he's been. And I mean, he did Girl in the Spider's Web last year, I think, and just like a, a you know, was a kind of a detective uh, in in that movie. So he's like, oh, he was in Knives Out. Of course, he was a he was the yeah. kind of uh, I wouldn't say unwitting, but this kind of uh, tag along detective character, which I think he does is very different, doesn't have much to do, but does a really good job in that as well. And I think that he's just, you know, going to he is one of the I mean, he was I think he did he win the the BAFTA award for best upcoming. Yeah, artist? I think, like, he did. I think it he was did, either yeah. him or Letitia Wright who won it last year. But I regardless, I think this guy is a real rising star. I think he's going to be big. Um, not that that's a bit of a, not that that's really a surprise at this point anymore. After, of course, sorry to bother you last year, but after short term twelve, go all the way back to that. That was yeah. I mean, you could go back to the for so many different actors and actresses, uh, Brie Brie Larson among them. Rami Malek, yeah, yeah. Well, Rami Malek, but no, (laughs) Uh, he was in the film. (laughs) He was in the film. That's right. Uh, But no, spectacular, spectacular job Uh, by Lakeith Stanfield as as well. um, because it, again, he's kind of this foil for Howard in the sense that he's a jeweler uh, of a different sort with a little bit, you know, a different kind of edge to him, I guess, so to speak. He's not the same kind of edge as he's not the same kind of edgy as Howard, but he is edgy in his own way. And uh, the performance that kind of gets kind of left out in the cold is Adina Menzel, not because it's bad. I think she does a good job as this performance, but it's very one note, uh, very much a, a wife or soon to be ex-wife at, at her wits end with the crap that she's had to deal with. Uh, but she, she does it well enough. You know, no one's going to see Elsa in this performance, but that's because it's not an Elsa performance uh, and, and good overall. But Julia Fox to me is the standout as well. But with that, we might as well talk about the story. Uh, you know, I want to save the finale for when we get to spoilers. Cause I mean, wow, what a finale it is. But this whole notion that we haven't even really explored yet is the fact that a large part of this movie is, built around this black opal, this Ethiopian black opal that Howard uh, sources, manages to acquire from these black Jews in Ethiopia, which is part of the opening sequence that you get is is the is them mining this opal, which I just think is unnecessary. It, it sets the tone for the movie maybe, but feels, uh, feels unnecessary to me ultimately. Uh, anyway, I think that, you know, the fact that he gets this opal, this is going to be his way to pay off this debt. He's going to auction it off for over a million dollars at this auction house. Turns out that doesn't play out the way that he expects it to. But, you know, he he has this opal and he shows that he thinks it's this kind of cool piece. He can show Kevin Garnett who walks into his store with Damani and all of a sudden now Kevin Garnett only wants this opal. He's hungry for this opal. Scott, does the way the story is set up and built, does it work for you? Yeah, no, it does. I I mean, I think it, it, it sets up the he's he's going through all these different gambles, right? Like from the very beginning, like he loans Kevin Garnett the opal and, you know, with the understanding that he, Kevin Garnett is going to give him the opal back the next day. And, he you know, he takes the Celtics ring for collateral. He then goes and pawns the Celtics ring to get money. He then, uh, you know, uses that money for something else. Um, and so, right, right, like from the get go, we see the sort of lifestyle that, Howard lives that he is always taking chances and that these chances are often getting him into a lot of, a lot of trouble, right? Like he, the next day when, when Kevin Garnett doesn't get the ring back, he has to go to Philly and that's where he has a falling out with Damani, which leads to him going to the club, which, um, you know, is where he has the fight with Julian. Everything feeds into, you know, another, right? Like it's, it's this chain of dominoes that starts from the beginning when he gives that opal to Kevin Garnett. Um, and, and so I think um, that's important. I also think it's important because, right, like this this thing is 
his prize, you know, is it is his pride and joy. Like he he thinks this is what's going to get him his big win. And yet he is able to get it. Get, he gives it away to Kevin Garnett for I mean, even for a night because he he sees all of these side hustles that he can pull off if he gives it away. He can, you know, take the Celtics ring. He can get this money, uh, blah, 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 blah. And so I think that just shows his approach to life is that like. I, you know, I will give up the most valuable thing that I have. Maybe that's, and maybe that's Julia. Maybe that's how he approaches Julia, his relationship with Julia as well. Like I will abandon Julia if it means, you know, I can get a score. I can, I can, you know, succeed on this side hustle that I have going. And so, yeah, I think these opening scenes really do set the tone for the movie and are, you know, are, are really important for what happens down the stretch. Yeah, no. For for me, it's one of those things where if you if you kind of the first time I watched the film, I sat back, I was like, "Wow, this story is just kind of wild." Like how, how it gets set up, it doesn't. It seems barely believable, but it, it it pulls together so well in the moment and everything that you're going through with Howard that it all makes sense. It all makes sense. Like it's unbelievable, but it makes sense. And I think that it's in that sense, it's really expertly constructed. And of course, just to not go over the same points that you were just making and channel ourselves towards the finale again going to talk more spoilers here now but a big part of this also is the fact that the you know these side hustles that you're talking about these are all to again to remind us to pay off this a hundred thousand dollar debt that he owes arno uh this lunch his loan shark brother-in-law uh and you know arno has a couple guys with him whenever you know around basically sends collectors to collect the money from howard to rough him up one of the early scenes in the movie actually is is them at his jewelry shop uh, trying to get the money out of him but it builds it constantly builds the fact that like um you know again talking full spoiler shit, uh, this is a spoiler for earlier on in the movie but it is a spoiler i still i still would consider it a spoiler but you know, the fact that they show up at his you know his daughter's play and you know rough him up in the back seat and you know basically you learn that kind of this first crazy bet that he had made the night before uh i guess i guess it would actually have been two nights no it was it was the night before this, this crazy bet that he'd made with his bookie the night before, uh, right after Garnett, he lent Garnett the the ring and then pawn, or sorry, lent Garnett the opal and then pawned, or I guess loaned out also Garnett's ring, takes that money, gives it to his bookie to get this crazy Celtics bet, um, and that he hits, that he hits with Garnett. Um, but the fact that we learned that they pulled the bet uh, earlier in the day, uh, and of course, rough him up, leave him completely naked in the trunk of his car, I think that. It, you have these escalating encounters between Arno uh, and, and his and his kind of uh, collectors and Howard Rat and Howard and Howard. I think that it really builds to this finale where you know he unsuccessfully uh, auctions off the ring, essentially, where it's the point where he has his grandfather end up buying it or uncle. I can't remember which is. I think it's grandfather uh, end up. Yeah, yeah, no, I think yeah, that's probably basically right. an extended family member ends mm -hmm. up buying the ring at the auction because he's trying to bid up Kevin Garnett and fails. Then he has to then come back and Kevin Garnett buys it straight off of him. So he actually ends up losing a little bit of money off of it, whether he, if he had just taken Garnett's money to begin with, um, loses a little bit of money though. And he had, but he has it. He has a hundred and sixty five thousand uh, dollars in his hands. Right? He needs like twenty some like thirty eight thousand of it to pay off. You know the the fee essentially that you the, are in his store. While he has the money. Yeah, while he has the money. Yeah. And he, well, oh, I was saying, no, he needs 38000 to pay off the his grandfather or uncle, like the, the difference between right, what right. he had received. But then that still leaves him $120,000. And he only needed 60000 to pay off yeah. the, the rest of the debt to Arno uh, and his thugs. But he watches them come into the store and then instead decides, you know what? 
I'm having this con- – so this is the conversation you were alluding to earlier even, I think, I believe, where you have Kevin Garnett's reaction to this. Where he's that like, actually wasn't what I was talking about, but yes, that is – Oh, it wasn't. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't. Okay. I'll get to it no. in a second, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, well, he has this con- – like he has this conversation with Kevin Garnett after he sells him the Opal. And Kevin, Kevin's just like, what are you doing, man? Like what, what is the deal? And he goes and he's like, this is how I win. It's kind of the, one of the scenes from the trailer. And he takes this money in the conversation. He's like, you know what? Let's put it all – let's make a bet right now. Let's put it all on you tonight. Uh, in game seven against the Sixers. And he he like gives the money to Julia while because he sees that Arno's Arno and his collectors are in the store, like literally outside his office waiting for him because he's told them that he has the money. He's told them he has the money uh, from Kevin Garnett. And he hands it to her through a window and gets her to fly to Mohegan Sun and make this crazy, crazy, crazy $165,000 bet on the cell. Which, <laughs> which, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. And then, of course, has the the thugs come into the store, and they're just like, "Oh my god! Like, I cannot believe what are you doing, Howard? I cannot believe that you're doing this." And Kevin Garnett is like, "Dude, I think you shouldn't do this. This is crazy. <laughs> like, just a wild moment." And then the finale, it being, of course, that you know, the last twenty minutes of this film, it's just it sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but the last twenty minutes of this film is Adam Sandler watching a Celtics game from 2012. Yeah, uh, no, and- I, I I've hated Adam Sandler. For- and his performances for this long, but little did I know that um, all it the, took was just a movie where a large majority of it is Adam Sandler watching old NBA playoff games. Yeah, but the finale of this film is that it is, it is essentially watching whether or not this bet that he has made, this hundred sixty five thousand dollar bet, uh, is going to pay off. And the fact that you know part of the bet is the tip of the game, whether Kevin Garnett wins the opening tip, is just like insane to watch there's some comedy even amongst the you know the the incredible tension that's going on right like when they do win the tip and he's like oh man we would have been screwed if we had lost <laughs> yeah. that yeah i wonder if that line was ad-libbed that's one of those sandler lines that you could imagine him yeah. just throwing out on set but maybe i don't know whether it was or not but anyway this is the finale of the film you know you have julia julia in at the casino at mohegan sun kind of being chased by one of one of arno's collectors uh while she's there at the casino and then also, of course, what's happening in Howard's jewelry store. Uh, Scott, what did you think of the finale of this film? And obviously, we'll get to what the actual finale of the film is here in a second. But what do you think of this? Yeah, no, I mean, it it, it absolutely works, right? Like, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, to, to, to skip ahead a little bit, because it's just hard not to talk about that, that sure. ending there. Um, and so the reaction that I was talking about, right, is the fact that when he wins the bet, right, and this is you know, this really speaks to, I think the, the credit, you know, credit to the movie that like us watching him watch the game is as exciting as it is, right? Like, yeah, it feels like our money is on the line um, when really it's not. But um, when Adam Sandler wins the bet, he wins this insane bet. He wins $1.9 million as a result of his bet. Um, while the henchmen are, you know, locked in this sort of entryway between his store and the exit, um, and we have like a close-up shot of, of Arno's face, of Eric Bogosian's face. And even though like he's at his wits end, he's, you know, mad at, at Howard or whatever, he cracks like this incredulous smile just for a second, right? Like, and that is, I think that sums up our reaction the to belief. this character for the whole movie, right? Like, even as much as we hate him, as much as we think he's being irresponsible, like you have to ad- admire his his chutzpah to a certain extent. And the fact that he's able to pull it off with, you know, seemingly no regard for any, for, for common sense or for logic. Um, but of course that, that moment of, of admiration, I guess is short lived because then um, the henchman burst in and um, Adam Sandler takes a slug to the face. Um, and I and think not that, a fist. That is a bullet straight to the face. 
Right. And I think that, you know, in thinking about this ending, I think maybe it has a lot of reason. It has a lot to do with why people are, are sort of mixed on this movie. Um, but actually, people should be pretty satisfied with this ending. For it's the only ending that makes sense. Well, right. So there's that. There's that element of it, right? Like the fact that, like you said, we've been seeing this escalating tension the whole movie between him and, you know, Arno and his and Arno's henchmen, and like they have increasing acts of violence towards him, right? Like they beat him up in the back of the car, they throw him in the fountain, they dangle him out of the window, right? Like, what's the next step? Well, it's shooting him, and um. And so, like, it, it makes sense, right? Like, he's had so many opportunities. He's been given so many chances by these people. And, you know, it, win the bet or not, like, that's not that's not important to them. Uh, they're they're tired of being screwed, right? Because who's to say Howard's not going to take that $1.9 million and go make another bet with it? It's actually 1.2, but yeah. Whatever. Yeah, um, a lot of money. But so, so there's that element of it, right? Like, the fact that it makes sense and the fact that if Howard wins the bet, right, and you know, gets away scot-free. What kind of message does that send? First of all, like that, that would seem to glamorize Howard's lifestyle, which is definitely not what the movie is trying to do. But also the fact that like, this is a happy ending, so to speak, because Julia then gets all of the money. She gets the $1.2 million and it's all her own. Like, right. Like maybe she will initially be upset about the fact that Howard is dead. I'm sure she would be. But ultimately, this is like the best case scenario for her, the one character that we actually care about, because she's got one point two million dollars and she's free of Howard. Right. Like the person who, you know, maybe doesn't really care about her, doesn't have her best interest at heart, maybe could, would go and lose half of that money. Um, and so, she, you know, it, it's it's a happy ending in some ways. Right. Like even though the protagonist of the movie, so to speak is lying dead on the floor. Like, I think you have to view this in context and the fact that this character is not meant to be a likable character ultimately. And so I think it's, it's a jarring finale for sure. It may leave you a little queasy in the end, but I think it's the only thing that makes sense. And ultimately like it's a satisfying ending for the one character that we actually empathize with, which is Julia. Yeah. To me, this is up there with, you know, one of the moments in Avengers infinity war, I think with cap, catching the hammer um really is probably the the loudest gasp of a moment in a movie that i've ever borne witness to i think that i watched it so i watched this movie twice in theaters one in a kind of a completely sold out theater and second in a pretty full theater with you and each time i mean the gasp that that this climactic moment gets out of people is just I mean, crazy, honestly. It's just it's so crazy. abrupt, right? Like he's just let them in. You're, you know, you're expecting some sort of dialogue to happen, but there's no dialogue. It's just bang and he's dead. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. And then, yeah, I think a second part of the scene that hasn't been talked about yet, just to talk about something different is the fact that Arno ends up dead as well. Yeah. I think the fact that, you know, his, his collectors have taken it too far for his mind and he just wants out. Uh, and instead what he gets, he also gets a bullet in the head. And I found that also to be a really interesting part of of the ending as, as well because obviously arno is someone who who is there the entire movie although he is in the background at times he's kind of the person that he owes this money to but isn't all that being howard howard owes money to but isn't always the person that howard's interacting with i mean at times he is right but uh not, not always and, and I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about what you think about this ending as well the fact that arno also ends up dead yeah i don't know it's not something that i've thought a ton about but um I guess it does compromise uh, what I was saying a little bit about this being a quote unquote happy ending, because I think I don't think there's any reason that we necessarily dislike Arno in the movie. Right? Like he's not 
openly antagonizing Howard. He's just wants his money back, right? Like it's understandable that he would want his money back. This, this person is family to him and he feels like he's just getting screwed over um, because he is getting screwed over uh, because Howard just won't pay him the money back. So I don't know. I, I don't know about like the larger implications of, of what it means. Um, but I think it's, you know, a somber moment, maybe a death that is ultimately harder to swallow than Howard's is. Yeah. I think part of it is just though, too, because like, it's one of those situations where Arno would have happily probably just taken his, uh, what, 60K or whatever else was, was owed to him and been on his way. Or maybe, maybe he tries to milk some interest out of Howard or something. But Phil, who is the person who's just been so antagonized, who kills Howard, is, yeah. and is the one who's just been so antagonized by Howard, of course, the film is just like, this was one step too far you know, for, for him and, and kind of the, the violence that erupts out of that, out of that moment, which, you know, like you kind of said, like, it feels like the natural conclusion of the film too. And so it's one of those situations where if Arno being family would probably never be okay or, or would, you know, or would, you know, do something like Phil does here at the end of the film, but it has to be done uh, for the story almost. And so it's one of those things where of course, you know, Arno watching his brother-in-law get shot in the face uh, as much as, Arno might despise um, despise Howard. It's not something he wants. So I think it's a it's a pill harder to swallow. But I think for me, it also further accentuates the fact of, of the the pain and the damage that Howard does, even in death. Right, the fact that yeah. he he has been responsible also for his brother in law's death, and, even and maybe, after his own death. And maybe like I, I you know, hearkening back to that scene at the beginning of the movie, like I don't I don't know that. I necessarily I think I'm probably on the same page as you that I don't know that it's necessarily served by the rest of the movie. But maybe if you want to connect it, like the fact that what is going on, like there's a parallel between what is going on over in in Africa with excavating the jewel. Right. Because we see someone who's been badly injured, who has this terribly broken leg. um, Mm -hmm. And so and, and, you know, what happens with Howard once he receives the opal, there's sort of this chain of violence that that emanates from. The stone and so maybe you know you can kind of connect that as well again like even even after howard is dead there are casualties left in his wake yeah absolutely i think that's i think that's really all the talking points i have i mean the kind of the last thing i just leave us with is that going back to something i was saying at the beginning is that i mean the safety brothers here i mean really i've never seen anything like it in terms of how they're able to both build and hold the tension uh in both in dialogue and in the events of the film scott and i just didn't know if you had any parting thoughts that you might want to leave uh, uncut gems with around the anxiety inducing component of it that people are talking about or the way that I as a, a, less, a, a little bit more of a calm way to put it the the tension that this film is able to build yeah that's what I was just gonna say I would just reiterate once again that you know a, as stressful as an experience as we are making this um, movie sound ultimately I think you will be glad that you saw it is it it is an incredibly entertaining and thrilling movie uh, it's well made, well acted. Um, and so I wouldn't get too hung up on the adjectives that are being used to describe this movie, because I think they're all as much as anxiety inducing may sound like a, a disagreeable thing. I think it's a credit to the movie and a compliment to the movie. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right, Scott, what's your favorite senior moment from Uncut Gems? Again, uh, another tough one to choose. There, there are a lot of great scenes in the movie. I guess I will go with um that scene with with him and kevin garnett i think that probably is the standout scene there in the office where um you know things really come to a head and and howard has one last chance right like to make the last choice to to make the right choice even after all that he's done after all that he's screwed up the relationships all of the bad choices he's made in the movie he can make it all right 
by taking the money, paying off who needs to be paid off. And he still has a little leftover for himself and Julia, right? Yeah. And as a viewer, the the movie, I think, does set you up to do this, right? Yeah. Because it, it, the movie's at a point where it's like, you know, Howard's made a lot of mistakes and he's done so much damage. I mean, he had like he has to repair like fix what he did to, you know, this extended family member, this either uncle or grandfather that, you know, he has essentially been, you know, forced him to front $190,000 for this Opal. And, and so you think that what's going to happen is this kind of reckoning for Howard's, you know, uh, sins, basically, basically, at least I think as a viewer, you could be excused for thinking that, but no, it triples down in that moment on the Howard yeah. that you've, you've been introduced to. Right. Yeah. So that's that's really the moment where we see the true Howard and where this um, story takes a climactic turn into like Shakespearean tragedy almost. Um, and so that I, I mean, I really appreciated that scene and, and Garnett really sells it as well. Yeah, I, I really do love that scene as well. It probably would have been the the one that I picked. But, you know, since we're since we're calling an audible, uh, I can also go. I think the, the climactic scene of the movie, I think it's so unexpected and so takes your brain it really takes the breath right out of you it, even if you don't gasp it really it really just sucks the air out of the room almost um you can hear a pin drop a couple seconds after that but it's just yeah i mean it's it's a it's one of those turns that you know if you're reading the script and you know if you're if you're reading like an early draft of the script you'll be like or an unfinished draft of the script you'd be like you know what they need to do this but i don't know will they have the courage to do it uh and, and they did it and it's really it's it's the perfect ending to the movie i agree all right scott let's put a score on it what are you giving uncut gems 9.1. This movie is excellent. There are, I think there are a couple scenes maybe that could have been trimmed down or that it maybe could even do without altogether. But yeah. overall, it is a incredible ride. And I really uh, encourage people to check it out if you're on the fence, even if you're not a fan of Adam Sandler. Like I could not be less of a fan of Adam Sandler going into this. And I still love the movie. Yeah, so a, a similar kind of context for my score as well. I'm giving it a 9.5. I think it is definitely one of the best films of the year. And for me... Again, I really the only thing that keeps us from a 10 is I think they could completely cut the first the first scene probably. And then, yeah, a couple of scenes here and there that feel just maybe slightly bit overacted, but really very minor stuff because this is this is one of the best ones of the year. Agreed. All right. I think that should do it for episode 71 of Some Like It, Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today, Scott? Uh, just, you know, like I said, uh, up top in the episode, stay tuned uh, tomorrow if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out um, for our best of the year episode. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, from what I'm looking at, it looks like we got about 24 or 25 different movies to talk about um, and four different lists to go through. Uh, and so I think it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Even if you're listening to this a little bit later, go back and check that episode out because that is what all of our episodes for the year have been building towards and it's the time when uh, we get to have a lot of fun and look back on the many highlights of uh, what was a truly stellar year in film so i'm really looking forward to it and i hope that you all are too yeah it's going to be a great celebration of 2019 tomorrow i think it's uh it's going to be a, a lot of fantastic movies for us to talk about yeah all right where can people find you on twitter at scarby Dent. awesome and i can be found at, at shelton 2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at Media Plug Pods. We'd love it even more, however, instead of it, well, as well as checking us out on Twitter, you should check us out on Patreon because uh, that is the lifeblood of our podcast. Uh, just kidding, that's not the lifeblood because we don't really have that much support over there, but we'd love more support, especially this time of year if you're feeling giving. Uh, check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. There are a bunch of different reward tiers over there, like getting the podcast episodes earlier, things like that. Check them out for yourself. Uh, get get involved how you can and contribute how you can we really appreciate that even if it's only at the one dollar level again www.patreon.com slash media plug pods check it out for yourself 
If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and pretty much wherever you find your podcasts. And we would appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us and subscribed and shared and all that jazz uh, over over there as well. So I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us talk about two movies, something that uh, on one podcast we don't get to do anymore. Uh, and we'll be back tomorrow at noon Eastern time, like Scott mentioned, with the first part of our 2019 in-review series, where Scott and I are going to be joined by the hosts of Purely Nostalgia, Clint and Eli, to discuss our respective top 10 movies uh, of, of 2019. So we hope you join us then. Thanks for listening.